This has nothing to do with the sermon today, but uh, great hymn. Great, great hymn. Boy, if that's not good theology, I don't know what uh, good theology is. Great, great theology, and what a great hymn. Thank you. So we have two great stories in our, uh, for our readings today, two wonderful stories. The first one, of course, is Jacob wrestling with the angel. All of us are very familiar with that particular story. We're also very familiar with the widow and the unjust judge. And it seems to me that both of them merit some conversation today. All of us, I suspect, somewhere along the line have wrestled with God. I think if I were to take a, a, a vote on everybody in every congregation, somewhere along the line, all of us would say that we have had some event wrestling with God. And we have to. I think we have to wrestle with God somewhere along the line. It may be the hardest struggle of our life, but it may be the most beneficial in our lives. As you and I know, if there's no struggle, there is no promised land. If there is no laming, there is no naming. If there is no cross, there is no crown. I think we have to come to grips with God. I think we have to come to grips with ourselves, and we have to come to grips with our neighbors. After all, we can't float through life indefinitely. And we also know that our faith has to be tried, if only for it to be strengthened. I have to tell you, I wish I had $100 for every time that someone has said these words or similar words like these to me. They would say something like this. I would not wish this on my worst enemy, nor would I choose to go through that again. But through it, I learn more about myself, I learn more about the meaning of my life, and I drew closer to God. To get on the other side of difficulty, we have to go through some of those harrowing moments in life. But we also need to remember what John Calvin said, that God fights with us with his left hand, and God fights for us with his right hand. If you happen to be left-handed, change that around. (laughs) But it's another way of saying that God becomes in us stronger than the power by which God opposes us. Let's set our reading in context in Genesis. Jacob has received some bad maternal advice. He has tricked his father into giving him the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. Not surprisingly, Jacob had to leave town, and now, years later, he's coming home. He is rich beyond his, the, the, wild, the wild imaginations of his youthful heart but still he is unreconciled to Esau through whose land he must pass to get there. And he hears that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. And in order to gain some favor with him, Jacob sent servants ahead of him with gifts of prized livestock, goats, rams, milk, camels, cows, bulls, everything that he owns, And he sends it to Esau in incredible numbers. And yet, Jacob fears for his life and for the lives of his family. I don't know how you read this particular passage. There are many, many ways of reading this particular passage. I offer you for your consideration this passage, this way of understanding it, because I think it's because where I am in my stage in life. I think that Esau using the language of psychology, represents Jacob's own shadow. That part of Jacob that connives so ruthlessly 
that part of him that condemns him loudly, as does the voice of the approaching Esau. I think Esau is that dark shadow that we all have, which we fear to face altogether as much as we fear the enemy itself. I am convinced that our greatest conflicts are internal. Our greatest enemies are within. Our deepest wounds are self-inflicted. So what is wrestling with God if not coming to grips with ourselves? It's facing what we prefer to flee, admitting what we would rather deny, letting the long separated parts of ourselves have it out with each other. What I like about this passage is that God initiates and forces us to deal with that shadow side of ourselves. When he's at the bank of that river, Jacob decides to deny his demons no longer. He wrestles with them as long as it takes to bring him to light, to wrestle with them until he gets God's blessing. I think that God wants us to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, and God wants us to be holy. And in order to be that way, we have to be reconciled with that dark part of ourselves, that shadow part of ourselves. That is the correct order, don't you think? For we sin out of our hurts, we wound because we first have been wounded, and we grasp for other people's blessings because we have never reached and accepted the one blessing that each of us needs, which is God's own blessing. At the end of the story, what I love about the story is that Jacob acquires the blessing, but he also acquires a limp. I like to think that prayer never leaves you unmarked. Wrestling with God never leaves you unmarked. And from that time forward, Jacob is marked as one of God's own. And then having gone through all of that, wrestled with the demons, Jacob is now free to return home. He is at peace with himself, and now he is ready to make peace with his brother, which he does in the book of Genesis. Having wrestled with God, he is ready for the promised land, the promised land which we all, for which we all yearn, the serenity that lies not on the near but on the far side of conflict, the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity. No laming, no naming. No struggle, no promised land. No cross, no crown. And so what happens when you wrestle with God? Do you lose or do you win? The beautiful thing about God is nobody ever loses with God. Everybody wins. We learn more about ourselves. We learn more about God and our relationship with God. And we learn more about those around us. Let's move on to the passage from Luke. C.S. Lewis remarked in an essay, an essay that he wrote on the Psalms, that whereas the posture of Christians before God is as the guilty party in a criminal trial, the posture of a Jew is as the complainant in a civil case. And C.S. Lewis says to us, we Christians need to adopt that posture. We Christians need to adopt that chutzpah, which is what he calls it in the book of Psalm, in his essay on the book of Psalm, that chutzpah, that righteous anger that allows us to get in trouble with God, that allows us to engage God, that allows us even to argue with God. 
finished reading a book not too long ago, which is called The Black Count. And it's, a, it's written by Tom Rice, and it's a story about the father of Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers and uh, uh, the other one, The Count of Monte Cristo, and it's based on his father's life. But it's an episode that takes place in Alexander Dumas' early life. And it's when his father dies, and he learns that his father dies, and somebody comes to wake him up, and he says, your father is dead. And he says, won't I see him again? And he said, no, you won't be able to see him again because God has taken him back from you. And the young boy, Alexander Dumas, says, forever? The person responds, forever. You say that I will never see him again? He says, never at all? Never at all. And where does God live? The young Alexander Dumas says, the person responds, God lives in heaven. Alexander Dumas thinks about it for a while. And it's a story. He goes up to the room where they keep all the weapons in his house, and he picks a weapon, and he comes down, and then armed with his gun, he goes to uh, crosses his mother, climbing to the second floor. And the mother says to him, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to heaven. What do you mean you're going to heaven, the mother says. He says, let me pass. And what will you do in heaven, my poor child, the mother says. I'm going there to kill God who killed daddy. And it says, my mother seized me in her arms, squeezing me as tightly as he could. I love that story. I love that story. I love that story because of the chutzpah that this boy has. And I love the story of the widow in today's story because she is just like that. Think about it. I think Jesus uses this widow uh, to blow up a story to drive off a point. This story makes no sense in the context of its time. Think about this. No woman in the ancient world would have been likely to intercede on her own behalf in front of a judge. The listeners would have been shocked by her brazenness. There would have been in the Instagram LOL, laugh out loud, about her chutzpah that breaks every social convention in life. She has no rights to approach the judge in private or public. Women did not do such a thing, and women had no legal recourse, to, to, uh, access to legal recourse, or even recognition in front of the court of, of a judge. Jewish society would never, ever believe the story, and Jesus is like using a story so out of the normal, so out of the parameters of what is normal to drive a point. And I think the, drive, the point that he's trying to drive is not that God answers all of our prayers, quickly and that justice is there forever. After all, how many of your prayers have been answered exactly the way you want them answered? I'm batting pretty low on those, I want to tell you. My batting average is about as bad as some of those nationals in that last game. (laughs) But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Jesus is inviting us to consider this. Don't lose heart. Keep at it. Keep on going. Hang in there. Hang in there, because when you hang in there with God, it's a sign of commitment. Now, remember, it's different from hanging on. Hanging on is an act of desperation. Hanging in is a sign of commitment. And Jesus is saying, don't lose heart. Hang in there. Keep on doing it. Keep on going. Be persistent. I tell you, it's a salutary comment for my life. I have a difficult time with prayer. If prayer is about, uh, if, if, if prayer is about relationship, then I always want somebody to respond to my comments. 
If I'm talking to somebody and I say something to somebody, I'm expecting an answer, some kind of an answer. And a lot of the times I sit there, I say amen, walk out of the room, and never hear anything again. But I know what it's like to lose heart when I stop praying. This is what I feel. Weariness, resignation, numbness, despair. I tell you this, when I lose heart, I lose my sense of direction and I lose my sense of focus. It's like my spiritual GPS has gone haywire. The world turns murky and everything, all the roads seem to lead nowhere. And it's almost at that point where I need to read a story like this, that like that old, those old GPS are saying to me, recalculate, recalculate, recalculate. You need to find the center again. You need to find the focus. You need to find the purpose of your life. And you can only find that in that relationship with God, which is best described by prayer. I can only speak from personal experience on this, but when I persist with a discipline of prayer, something happens to me. My sense of who I am and to whom I belong becomes clearer. My heart grows stronger. It becomes less fragile. And once in a while, it even soars. It gives me a sense of purpose. There's a book entitled The Path to Purpose. A guy by the name of William Damon wrote it. And it defines purpose as the capacity to hold to a firm belief in something, the why of our lives. And he said, as long as we possess purpose, we are able to endure stress, setbacks, and tragedy. It's what makes us resilient in life. I'm in the middle of another novel entitled Grace, just started a few days ago, and it's about to the beginning of it. It's about uh, African-American women in slavery, the Old South. And one of the things that they keep mentioning at the very beginning of the novel, I haven't gotten beyond the first uh, half of it, but it's that they keep talking about North. And the older girl keeps talking back to the younger girl, and she, the younger girl says, what is North? Is it a direction? He says, no, north is not a direction. Well, what is north? Where does north point? He says, north is not about a place. It's not about a direction. He says, it's about a purpose. It is about a purpose. It is about finding out the purpose for your life, and you have to get to north. I don't know where the novel goes, but I tell you, when you have that sense of purpose, when you have that sense of purpose that comes with a connection with, connection with God, then you can stand anything. You can go through anything because you know that God will be there holding on to your hand, guiding us and supporting us along the way. I'll tell you this. Constant prayer shapes the person who prays. Repeated prayer gradually tests and sifts what is important to you and what is of, value, of lesser value to you? A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were in London. And while we were in there, we had an opportunity to go to the museum, the war room. Have you been to the war room in London? That, uh, at the end of the war, they shut it down. And now it has a museum to Churchill in the very back of it. Really a great, great thing. If you go, go there. You'll enjoy it. At any rate, they have on the museum about Church, uh, Churchill, a lot of his sayings are plastered all over the wall, and the one that caught my eye was when Churchill, gives it, uh, Churchill, 
Church of Winston Churchill says to all of the English people, to all of the United Kingdom, and says, never, never, never give up. I think that's what the uh, Gospel of Luke is saying, don't you think? Never, never, never give up. Never, never, never give up on God because God hasn't given up on you. So Luke is saying, pray ceaselessly. Pray every day. Keep on doing it. Make a habit of it. Do it whether you like it or whether you don't like it, whether you think you're good at it or you're not good enough at it. It's Luke saying, never, never, never give up praying. Keep on praying every day. Pray on the good days and pray on the bad days. Pray on the days when the word comes hard and pray when you have nothing to say. Pray especially on those hard days. Pray when you are stuck and do not want to pray. Eventually, you will get that passionate feeling from God giving us a sense of purpose. Never, never give up on prayer. You know why? God will never, never, never give up on us. Amen. Amen.